0: After his resurrection, Jesus spent weeks, hours, appearing to the apostles, explaining the scriptures to them, opening their minds and their hearts to the significance of his resurrection, how to understand it, how it meant mission for them, what it meant for the world. That's what we're celebrating right now in this time of Easter, these days after Easter, that these weeks in which the the liturgy and the readings of the mass are reminding of this in which we in our personal prayer try to understand better and better. Before Jesus ascended though, at the end of all of that time when he had been teaching the apostles, he gathers the apostles together, they come together and he's about to be ascended to heaven and one of the apostles asks a question that could seem a little bit strange, especially given all of the conversations that they had had before. He, asked, he says, Lord, is it now that you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel Now, for our ears, that sounds like a very foreign thing. I mean, none of us are kind of thinking, probably, none of us of you have thought today, hmm, I wonder if God's going to restore the kingdom of Israel today, or when is that going to happen? You know, it's kind of something I've been worrying about in the last few weeks. What is, we don't even, we're not even sure what that means. That could be a whole class, if you like, what it means. But very simply, so that it helps us pray right now, because our goal right now is to pray. What he's asking with that question is, Lord, when are you going to heal the world? Is it now that you're going to set things right? Deal with evil, with suffering, with misery? That the joy and the peace that is the very life of God, is it now that it's going to fill the world as the waters fill the seas? Is is it going to happen now that you're about to leave us? That was the question. And I think it's an important question because, well, first of all, the answer that Jesus gives is to say, well, it's not for you to know times and hours. Go out and be my witnesses throughout all of the world, and I will be with you. So Jesus doesn't correct him saying, hey, you shouldn't answer that, ask that question, you're mistaken. No, just think, I will heal the world. I will fill the world and everyone in it and all of creation with my own joy and peace. But just don't worry about when that's going to happen. I say all of this at the beginning of our prayer to remind ourselves that our Christian hope has that as its object. That God is going to heal the world. He's going to sort things in the world and in your life and in mind. He is going to answer the question that each one of us is. In other words, Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, doesn't just leave the apostles and the church a morality, a rule book. Saying, this is how I want you to behave. Now just do the things that I said to you. And if you do them, you'll get hoovered up into heaven. And things will be grand there. But just follow the rules that I've left you. That's the goal. No. The goal is, I have resurrected. I have initiated a new creation. It's underway. It's happening. People don't see it because you have access to it through faith. Through the sacraments through the presence of the Holy Spirit, active in your lives. But it's underway. It's happening. And there's going to come a moment where what's underway is going to reach its climax, it's going to be consummated, and that is the second coming, the new creation, the resurrection. That's where this is headed. That's our Christian hope. Christianity is not simply a morality. It's not a way of behaving. Its way of behaving is a response to the hope that it has, since Jesus has risen from the dead, since this new creation has taken place, since we know that all of this is going to a place where God is gonna sort the evil and the suffering and the confusion. Since all of that's happening, we have to act in accordance with that truth because that's what makes sense. We align ourselves with it. That's why I should try to love others as Christ has loved them. That's why I want to walk in the truth. That's why I want to avoid things like envy and resentment and hatred and sensuality. Because I believe that this truth is already present and I want to align myself with it. That is our hope. Now, one of the ways that you and I live in this hope and one of the ways that Jesus wants us to uh, make that hope grow strong within ourselves is through constancy in our prayer. That's really the theme that I'd like for us to kind of think about for the rest of our our meditation this afternoon. Constancy in prayer. As as an expression of our hope and a way of strengthening our Christian hope, which has that wonderful object of God is going to heal the world. He's going to answer the question each and every one of us is. Constancy in our prayer. Now, to do this in a prayer, I'd like for us to turn to chapter 18 in Luke's gospel. He tells two stories and an event, all of which shines light on the importance of constancy in our prayer. In fact, St. Luke begins the chapter 18 saying, then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart to not get discouraged, to not give up. And the first story that Jesus tells is a story about a judge. But when I say judge, maybe it would be better for us to think of a, of a kind of mediator. Because in this story, he's not a criminal judge. You know, people brought to, to before him who've been convicted of robbery or murder, and then the judge just has to give them a sentence of how long they're going to be in prison, or how much they're going to be fined. He's more someone who adjudicates between two people who are suing one another, maybe over an inheritance, maybe over property, maybe over a business deal that's gone wrong. He has to mediate, and one person is accusing the other, and he has to decide in favor of one of the two people. So he's a judge in this sense. Now in the story that Jesus tells, he explicitly says that this judge was unjust. He had no interest in giving what was due to the individual people, he didn't care about justice. In fact, Jesus tells a story that he didn't care about God either. He didn't respect anybody, he just cared about himself. What people wanted, what they deserved, could care less. An unjust judge, first character in the story. The second is a widow. We aren't given any details of why she was going to court, what her her issue was. Maybe it was a thing of inheritance. Maybe it was a family member who was trying to take something away from her. All we know is that she was a widow, and the significance of that is that she didn't have family to stand up for her. In a society that was very, very, very male-dominated, she was at the mercy of others in an extraordinary way. And, in the story that Jesus tells, this widow keeps going to the judge, asking, her, asking the judge to give her justice. As St. Luke's Gospel says, give me justice against my opponent. In other words, decide in my favor, help me. And Jesus tells in the story that she kept going to him over and over and over again. I had the impression it was almost daily. It was constant. Now, what does Jesus want us to learn from her? From this constantly coming to plead for justice, that, that this judge decide in her favor? Well, within the context of the story, we could imagine how easy it would have been for her to not go to him. Let's, we try to fill out the story in our own imaginations, right? She's a widow. She has no one to rely on. She's uh, needs this inheritance. Let's imagine that's what it's about in order to survive and she can have a place to stay and where to live. And she's got all these other people who are against her. But she knows that this judge is unjust. He doesn't care. He doesn't want to listen to her. He doesn't even want to see her. He, she knew his reputation. Imagine how easy it would have been for her to say what's the point? You know? I'm just, you know, I don't have any hope. There's nothing for me to do. Why even try? What's the point of it? But not only does she give herself to that employing, she keeps at it. She overcomes that uh cynical voice, that temptation to give in, and she just keeps going, she keeps going, she keeps insisting. And that is what Jesus points out for imitation. Constancy. She doesn't give up, she doesn't let uh, all of those other reasons that would be very good reasons for giving up persuade her, she insists, give me justice, give me justice. That's the action that Jesus wants us to imitate, but he also gives us the reason why we shouldn't give up. And he does it by setting up an ironic contrast in the parable, in the story. And this is the ironic contrast. This poor widow keeps coming, give me justice, give me justice, insisting, ba, 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 drilling away. She doesn't give up, even though it seems completely irrational that she keeps insisting. Jesus is holding up that for example. But then he, in the story, tells what the unjust judge has as his response. And here I read from the Gospel of Luke. For a while, the unjust judge refused, but later he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. That's his thinking. You know, actually when I was preparing this, I read, uh, there was a little footnote at the end of this line in the New Revised Standard Version, and I, I looked it up and it said, some ancient sources read, they have an alternate version of this, that instead of saying so that she may not wear me out, she might not wear me out, Some other ancient versions of of St. Luke's Gospel say, so that she may not come and slap me in the face. (laughs) Which I had never seen, but anyway, but I thought it was kind of another interesting, whether that was a version, be another highlighting of the insistence of this widow. She wasn't going to take no for an answer. So the response to the unjust judge is, well, look, I don't care about her. I don't care about God, but I just am worn out. I don't want to get slapped in the face. So I'm going to give her what she wants. So that's the response there. But then Jesus says, but look, even if a horrible person will eventually give in to persistence, what about someone who is good? This is the point Jesus makes. And Jesus said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And that's the most important point that right now in our prayer we want to renew our faith in, that God is good. Maybe that sounds simplistic, but Jesus is telling a very subtle, elaborate story to try to drive the point home because we have a hard time believing it. And one of the demonstrations that we have a hard time believing it is that we don't persist in our prayer. We give up. We are not constant. Jesus shows us the strength of this woman who even dealing with someone who wasn't good, who was actually wicked, who didn't care about her, she just insisted, insisted, insisted. And even in that case, she got what she wanted. So Jesus sets up that extreme case and says, how much more For someone who actually cares about you, who's on your side, who loves you, who's interested in you. If you believe that that's the case, why would you give up? Why would you not persist in your prayer? And this is why Jesus ends the, the story of the widow and the unjust judge by saying, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You know, Jesus looking at them, Jesus looking at you and me, and saying, when I return, will I find faith? Are you going to persist? Will I find people who still keep asking, confident in God's goodness? Or will they be deceived by appearances? The appearance that when I pray, nothing changes. When I ask, there's no response. That things are still hard. There's still challenges. Horrible things happen to good people. All of those things can challenge our faith, can make us doubt, can make us turn and rely on ourselves to look elsewhere for reassurance and consolation rather than to prayer. We're afraid to invest all of our energies and all of our hopes in asking the way that that widow did because we're just not sure if it's worth it. After this story of the widow and the unjust judge, there's another story that Jesus tells. He finishes that one and he starts with another one. He says, and this is a story of two men who go to the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee, a man who was publicly committed to following the law in rigorous detail, to prayer, to trying to live according to God's law. That was one of them who goes up to the temple. And the second was a tax collector. Now again, this is something that you have to understand a little bit about first century Palestine, but A tax collector was someone who was looked upon as a sinner, not because, you know, then as now, people didn't like to pay taxes, but because he was someone who was colluding with a sinful empire. He was someone who had compromised. He had sold out. Instead of believing that Israel was God's chosen land and that only God could rule over it, he was collaborating with pagans so as to get by. He was taking care of himself and it's sold out on his people and his religion. So Jesus tells a story of two men who go up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, another, a tax collector. And the difference between the two turns on what they expect from God. Now, I'm not gonna read through the passage here, but if you remember, the Pharisee, as Jesus tells the story, when he goes into the temple to pray, His prayer is based on comparing himself with other people. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people who are sinful and wicked and evil, but I do a lot of good things. You know, I tithe, I fast, I pray, I follow the law. And I also thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Now, the risk when we read this parable, when you hear it right now, we think about it in our prayer, is that we might think, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me. And it probably doesn't in that sense because I doubt any of you have ever come into your prayer and kind of looked at the Blessed Sacrament and said, God, thank you for making me so good. I'm glad that I am not like all the other people who are so wicked and evil and bad because these are all the wonderful things that I do and I'm just fantastic. And None of us is deranged in that way, right? So none of us us would ever think to pray in those terms. But... What's really going on in the Pharisee's prayer is not some sort of uh, narcissism necessarily, but comparing himself to others and feeling, you know, pretty good about where he stands. And that is something that can happen to us, closer than we think. The thought, "We well, are you know, not that bad. I'm doing okay." You know, I mean, I'm going to church. I mean, look at us here, we're here praying. You know, it's pretty good. I mean, I'm doing a lot better than most other people. You know, and when, as we see a lot of people leaving the practice of the faith, people who, who sneer at it and, and laugh at it and mock it, you know, when you walk around the university campus, you, know, you can have a sense of, you know, I'm one of the few. I'm, you know, I'm, do, I'm doing okay. And in a sense, it's true in a sense, just as it was for the Pharisee, by the way. He was doing a lot of good things, and he was doing more than a lot of people. But what he failed to see is how much he needed prayer. For the Pharisee, prayer had become an optional, you know, kind of the cherry on the cake. It's nice to have, but if you don't have it, you still have the cake, right? It's not essential. And as a result, when he went to the temple to pray, he really wasn't expecting that much from it. He was very unlike the widow, insisting, expecting that this is going to, I will get justice. This is going to go forward. But the tax collector, as he prayed, as Jesus tells the story, he beat his chest asking God for forgiveness, not even wanting to raise his eyes to look at him because he didn't feel worthy. Because the tax collector is willing to recognize his own neediness, he bets everything on God's mercy and his goodness. He can't look around and say, well, I've done this or this, the other. And, and it doesn't, it is almost kind of better in a sense, because he says, look, Lord, I'm going to bet everything on your goodness, your mercy. An attitude very similar to that of the widow. How do you pray? What are you betting on? When you look at God right now, when you turn and your attention to Him in your prayer, on what do you stand? A sense of confidence? Inertia? What we need to stand on is an absolute faith in His goodness. That He is looking at me right now Eagerly wanting to give me grace, love, mercy. He wants to sustain me. He wants to heal me. He wants to open me up to possibilities of life and of meaning that are beyond my wildest imagination. That's what is, in, is contained in this word. He is good. He looks at me and says, what would be best for you? He's not looking at me and saying, okay, what do you have to offer? What can you do for me? He is on your side. That has to be our motivation to be constant in our prayer. Not just asking for things, you know, better weather or good grades or, you know, a relationship to go better. That too, okay, it's fine. I don't think there's anything beyond the pale of asking Our Lord, as long as it's something that isn't offensive to God, as long as it's something that we could worthily ask in his name. But more more deeply and more importantly, are we trying to pray each day with that constancy and growing in that faith in his goodness? Think about it this way. Let's just do a little bit of examination. Just think about the last two or three days. What have my reactions been when things were hard? Things were difficult. I was challenged. Was it to complain? Was it to avoid that? Was it to want to run away? Or did I turn to God and say, Lord, help me see. Help me to be strong. Help me to go forward. Help me to trust in you. Has there been a lot of avoidance or has there been embracing, saying, Lord, you're with me in this. Let's go. Let's face it. Bring it on. I'm not going to put this off anymore. I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to stop worrying and fretting about this future situation. And Lord, I'm going to put it in your hands because I trust you. I'm avoiding this other person because I don't want to have this conversation with her. Lord, help me stop avoiding that. Let's, I'm going to go ring her right now and talk to her. All of this, we could multiply and get even more specific. But if we just think back on the, in the last few days, isn't it true that there's a lot of opportunity for me to grow in believing in God's goodness? And that that belief needs to express itself in prayer, in asking, in relying in entrusting things to him. And precisely to this point, after Jesus tells those two stories in chapter 18 of Luke's gospel, the unjust judge, the, two, the tax collector and the Pharisee, go to the temple, right after that, Luke tells us of an event, something that happens. It's not a story, but it's one of the events. He says, people then were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they sternly ordered them not to do it. But Jesus called for them and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. We said in the previous two parables that what Jesus wants us to see is that God is on our side, his goodness, and inspired by that faith to be constant in our prayer. In this gesture towards the little children and his rebuking of the disciples, keeping the little children away, Jesus goes in a sense even deeper Trying to help us see that we have to have our, our conviction of about God's goodness needs to be exactly like the conviction of little children towards their parents. It's, it's unthinkable, you know, that, that a four year old would go to her mother, you know, and ask for you know, some lunch. You know, mommy, I'm hungry. <coughs> and then afterwards be afraid, you know, when the mom gives her some food, hmm, I wonder if she poisoned it. I'm going to go feed it to the cat first just to make sure and i'll see what happens and then i'll have my lunch when when a child goes to her parents it's with trust why because she believes that her parents are good and good in the sense not that they're morally perfect but that they want what's best for her they're going to take care of her they're going to support her they're going to encourage her and with Just absolute clarity, Jesus is saying, truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of of God as a little child will never enter it. In other words, unless you're willing to have that exact same trust in God's goodness, you will always stay far away from him. You will not be able to enter into his fatherly care, to be ruled by him and guided by him. And you won't be able, because you're going to be standing back. You won't persevere in your prayer. You're going to rely on yourself. You're going to compare yourself with other people and be content with more or less getting by. You're going to be at arm's length with this loving father, instead of allowing him to take you into his arms and embrace you and give you all that you truly need, not what you think you need. And boy, is there a difference sometimes. Precisely because he is good and he's in your favor, he knows what you really need. That's what he wants to give us. And just as small children, you don't think that they may need to eat four pounds of chocolate, and that that's really what's best for them. It has to be their parents and say, no, you're gonna have porridge for breakfast and not four pounds of chocolate, or you you don't need eight donuts, you can just have one gives them what is actually good for them and and so too God with us. It sounds so simple when we say it doesn't it? But let's be humble and recognize that it's still a lesson that we need to learn. We really really need to learn it. How much suffering we would save ourselves. How much wasted energy would be avoided. How much joy would be possible if we prayed with constancy and with assurance, knowing that God will give us what is best. Just as a child who asks persistently from his parents for what is good, knows that somehow the parents are going to give them what is best. Lord, increase our faith as we see your presence in your Son, in the Eucharist, as we believe that you are present in our body in the Holy Spirit, as you have given us your mother Mary, increase our faith in your goodness and let that faith express itself, strengthen itself in our daily renewed decision to pray to you, to entrust ourselves to you, all of our worries and concerns, big or small, Lord, into your hands. I confide in you, I ask them of you, and that we want to make our life a prayer as well. Not just because we ask a lot during the day, but I'm gonna try to live in a way that aligns with what God is asking of me. That too is part of the prayer. Mary is a mother. Mary is on our side. Mary wants us to pray as little children. Let's ask her to help us learn that lesson. To discover that praying like children isn't some cutesy little, sappy little thing, but it requires strength, real strength. To believe, sometimes in the spite of all appearances, that God is genuinely on my side. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father in Lord, my guardian angel in a seat for me.